Welcome. I'm your host, Francisca Porchas Coronado. This podcast is a project of Vigente in collaboration with Resilient Strategies. Vigente is a political home of Latinx people that is pro-black, pro-woman, pro-queer, pro-migrant, pro-poor, because our community is all that and more. Resilient Strategies is a healing justice project transforming the impact of state violence on our bodies and the collective as a critical part of liberation. La Cura Podcast will take you on a journey that centers Latinx healing and well-being. We will explore what healing is, the possibilities for it, and engage in a conversation with thought leaders, historians, spiritual sages, trauma-informed healers, traditional and Western medicine practitioners, and many more. Our traditional healing practices have been critical to our own survival and continued presence as Latinx people. Our blood memory reminds us through dreams, instinct, and costumbres, even when the cognitive memory cannot recall. Our culture, traditions, stories, and remedios continue to sustain us and nourish us even in the midst of all the world's brokenness and despair. Today, many of us search for connection, belonging, and fortitude while honoring who we are in the process. Welcome to La Cura Podcast. Welcome to La Cura Podcast, everybody. This is your host, Francisca Pochas Coronado. I am super excited to be back and that we are officially launching our first season. Uh, the previous season was a experiment. <laughs> Thank you for joining us in that experimental uh, journey, which was five episodes on the conversation of decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing. And we had really good conversations and um, learned a lot, had a lot of fun. We learned a lot both from the folks that were on the show, but also just in general, things that I had no idea how to do, like recording an hour-long podcast episode I had never done engineering, editing, production, publishing, promotion, all of these things that were definitely a very steep learning curve for me within a few months. Um, We literally recorded the first season within a few weeks and then just sort of made it happen. Um, All that to say that I'm really grateful to mi gente, I'm really grateful to Marisa Franco, to who's a director of mi gente for for really helping resource this project, for for having the beautiful idea of making it happen, for believing that I could make it happen. I don't think I ever really imagined myself um, doing a podcast or really having to hear my voice this much. (laughs) So uh, thank you, Marisa. I love you. Um, And the second person is Michael Soto, who really um, got us to figure out how to do this. He's, he's got a lot of experience and was really sweet and generous with us and, um, and really kind of showed us the ropes uh, enough that now we feel we can, um, you know, walk a little bit more confident. I wouldn't say fully confidently, but, you know, a little more confident in doing this. So I just wanted to shout them out. And Rafa Maya, who did who's in Puerto Rico, who's um, an awesome musician who who also learned how to edit podcasts and, and put in a lot of work. So much love to you, Rafa. And um, so I just want to put that out um, today. I wanted to name these folks who who really made this happen. It's a team effort. Um, I'm excited to be back. There is so much to talk about. There's so many ideas that we have for what we want to bring as a conversation to you all as the folks who have 
been our uh, faithful audience over the last five episodes. Um, and also uh, so much that we want to gain from you, so much that we want to learn from you. So um, we want you to really do share with us what you thought of the previous pilot season and also concepts, questions, um, traditions, uh, debates that you're grappling with around the conversation around decolonizing Latinx health and reclaiming traditional healing, please, please reach out to us at lacurapodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can send us messages on Instagram. We're sort of getting our, our um, you know, social media <laughs> situation uh, together, uh, which we hadn't. And so um, please do send us messages. We want to hear from you. You all are, are um, the most important um, folks who we want to uh, know your opinions, your thoughts, your, your sort of questions, your disagreements too, please. They're welcome. Um, we want to hear from you. So with that being said, um, you know, we, we pulled those, like I said, those five episodes hella quick. Um, this time it had been a while. We said we'd come back on the fall. I think we barely made the fall this November. <laughs> um, since then, you know, I was very pregnant when I um, recorded the last five pilot um, season episodes and I had a baby uh, in July, a little cancer baby. Um, and just coming back super um, open and kind of raw and, um, vulnerable in a lot of ways. It's been, she's three and a half months. It's been quite the journey. It was a really wild sort of build up to her birth in good and not so great ways. Um, I'm really grateful that she's healthy, that, that we're here, that we're well, the universe sort of um, you know, aligned the stars in a way that all worked out well. Um, and at some point I'd love to tell you more about these journeys that I've had, um, in having and conceiving and having my children, which has been a challenge. Um, this is my third child and my last child. So it really is closing a, a long, a 10 year chapter in my life of of reproductive struggles and triumphs. So just feeling really grateful to the universe for these challenges and these lessons that I've learned in this process, which I will tell you at some point more about. Then I feel like I've been in other worlds before coming to record this and coming as a person who felt like they just got initiated or reinitiated into something. So I hope that I can bring some of that to this season, some of that tenderness that I'm carrying right now and that love. And I feel like I've been broken open in really good ways. Um, and so I hope that I can bring some of that to this conversation this time around. So thank you for joining us for season one. And Let's get to the first episode. Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to La Cura. I am very excited today to have my good friend, mi hermana del alma, um, Luana Morales. Um, and she is a death midwife. I am really excited to talk to her today about her work, what led her to this work, her political analysis um, in some ways, her spiritual analysis, both of death, but also how the society relates to death and how we treat uh, this transition that happens for us, which is really sacred in a lot of ways. Um, and also, you know, I just had a child um, about three months ago and um, have been sort of obsessed with with midwifery for a long time, way before I had children. And I trained as a doula, but didn't practice too long. 
um, decided it was probably not the best path for me, but I have so much love and respect for, for, for birth doulas and for birth midwives. And there's so much political conversation and advocacy around the sacredness and around the importance um, of coming into the world, right? Making your entrance into the world as a, as a little tiny human, as a spirit in a harmonious, loving way and a way that's supported, that's self-determined, that's dignified. And then also that's the same for, for the conduit of this spirit, which is the, the parent um, that's bringing this, this child into the world. But there hasn't been as much conversation, in my opinion, about death midwifery and about also leaving this material existence in the same way living this material existence in a dignified, self-determined, harmonious, community-centered way. Because many times the way in which we leave and the way in which we entered is determined by the medical industrial complex. And so here we are today um, having, I think we've made a lot of headway in the way in which our peoples arrive into the world, although there's so much work to do. There's, um, but there there hasn't been um, as much or any, if I would say, um, transition and the importance of it. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to speak to Luana, um, as well as just my admiration for her um, and her work. Uh, so I want to tell you a little bit about who Luana is before we start to have a conversation. So um, a little bit about Luana is that she's a birth and revirement doula, death midwife, circle keeper, efficient Reiki master, teacher, and herbal apprentice. And she's devoted to reclaiming our birth, death, and Afro-Indigenous healing practices. She creates containers that support reflection, experimentation, healing, learning, collaboration, and joy for our individual and collective liberation, be it through the individual sessions or group facilitation workshops and retreats. And then prior to her work, as a full-time healing arts practitioner and facilitator, she dedicated 18 years of her working um, in human services with individuals in a variety of settings, including residential long-term treatment, outpatient and supportive housing, um, with individuals and families struggling with mental health issues, trauma, addiction, chronic health conditions, and homelessness. She also dedicated 11 years to community-based parenting education, supporting families affected by substance abuse, mental health illness, and trauma. And in 2017, she founded Seeds of Our Ancestors, a mobile, interdisciplinary, intergenerational, multi-lineage healing squad. Luana is committed to being present and being of service at every phase during pregnancy to the end during the dying process. She truly sees the beauty in all of it. And she's especially interested in supporting people through transition, being it a move, a divorce, a loss of a loved one, a health issue, or other important life changes. She also has a commitment to supporting and holding sacred space for transitional age girls, whether they are experiencing their first cycle or becoming teenagers or graduating high school, Luana will work with you on creating memorable and special ceremonies, including weddings, renewal of vows, commitment ceremonies, etc. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about where you are right now. We were talking about this earlier, like where you're sitting, um, in, in what space. Thank you so much, first of all, for just like the privilege of like being here with you across time and space <laughs> um, I'm in Boston. Um, yeah. Just like here in, in my dining room, excited to, you know, to have this conversation. Luana, did you grow up in Boston? Tell us a little bit about your family or your community. Yeah. So I was made in Puerto Rico, born in Boston. Um, in different parts of New England and in Puerto Rico, um, I, I identify as an Afro-Boricua, Afro-Taina. Came back to Boston and have been here for the last, I don't know, 25 years, um, where I've raised my two children who are, are now young adults. 
yeah, this has been the space where I've been able to, you know, build community and really anchor to be able to do all of the work that I've been privileged to, yeah, to do. And that has formed me for sure. I met you a few years ago. Um, and I feel like we instantly mm. clicked. And one of the biggest things you told me, which was really inspiring, was that you had just recently left your job and decided to become a full-time healing mm -hmm. arts practitioner and how exciting that is and was and how scary mm -hmm. as well, right? For all of us who I think are many people who are in these more traditional you know, jobs to, to decide, okay, this is it. I'm, I'm, and spirit's gonna guide me and hold me. And so I'm excited to hear more about this particular practice you've been engaging in of, of death midwifery and dedicating yourself to leave, to it fully. And so I don't want to assume that the folks that are listening to us know what it is. And so it would be good for us to just start with basics of like, what is, death midwifery so death midwifery is is basically um, a person who comes in and supports folks at the end of life um, it is not a medical position right so we're not there to do what hospice says for example um, and you show up to give sacred presence. You're there to show up to the create the conditions and the container to support a dying person have a death with dignity, to have their their visions for themselves on their, you know, on this transition to death um, be honored and communicated, to support folks in reclaiming some of the ritual aspects to support the families, however family is defined for the individual in, in their own process, but also centering the dying person. So for example, I can be brought in to, you know, to support someone who is having a home death and, you know, and I, and I could be brought in to kind of help organize or facilitate that process you know, along with the other professionals, you know, to talk to people about what their choices are. I can be supportive in a hospital setting. I can be supportive in a hospice setting, both in tagging someone out, right? Uh, um, caretakers, you know, often are unsupported. So I can be brought in to, you know, to hold vigil, to hold the hand, to be with, you know, someone who is actively dying and give someone respite and also kind of lead through, the ritual of okay, this the spirit has left this body, and and have a ceremony where I can guide the family and the loved ones on how to tend to the body, you know, that they can touch them, that they can wash them, that we can sing them songs, that we could dress them in their favorite clothes, that we can create the conditions for us to not be rushed. So we could really fully accept that this person is no longer with us. A lot of what, what happens is that a person dies oftentimes in the hospital. Most people don't want to die in a hospital, but most will die in a hospital. A lot of times we don't know that we don't have to rush out of there, that we can be with, you know. So our beloved dies. We're there for, I don't know, half an hour or so. We rush out of there. We see them again in a box in a funeral home. And, and this is obviously for, for folks who, who do that, right? Different traditions have different ways of, of going through this, through these like after death rituals. But, you know, you have a wake, sometimes a day or two at a funeral home. The family gets a moment, an extra half an hour before the crowd comes in. You sit in a chair and this is when you're fortunate enough to have community um, if you belong to a church, you know, you kind of experience that. And then, and then they're whisked away. Having looked at your beloved in a box, oftentimes not looking like themselves, you know, for some folks like that works for them. And then for others wish there was a different way. And part of what I do and I'm committed to is to showing people that there is a different way 
that things like embalming aren't legally required, that that you can have time with your with your beloved at home for a few days and there's things that you can do to make that happen even when they die in a hospital you know and obviously each state has their own regulations but um i can work with folks to help figure those things out and then the other part is the educational part right so having those conversations in community um kind of like education around like other options or you know like sitting down and filling out the five wishes where we're where we're having these conversations around like body disposition and who's going to make the medical decisions for us who's our medical proxy do we want a DNR do not resuscitate and making sure that we're communicating with the right people who are going to honor our wishes so that way you know when that time comes that we can't make those decisions for ourselves we have people that we trust that we've had conversations with um and not have people at the height of panic and grief trying to figure out and bigger with each other over what they think is best for you. I think you did a really beautiful job of describing the industry essentially, which is both the the medical industry to some extent and the power they have over uh, how we determine um, both our the way that we go, death, and then also what happens after we're gone and how our family gets to relate to us. I can't even say commune because many times that doesn't really happen. It's just like, how do we relate to then this body that's left mm-hmm. behind? Um, and then also mm-hmm. the funeral industry mm-hmm. um, and and that how that continues to determine how we relate to um, to our loved one. So let's let's start with just the basic. Um, even before going into these industries, how are we as a culture and as a people relating to death? And obviously, the industries are really powerful in, in what they do with us because we often just hand over our our agency mm-hmm. to the medical industry, saying like they know best, they know what to do. But to some degree, I think the way we relate to death, I think these days also, as opposed to what, how our ancestors might have related to death maybe very different. And in some ways that adds to why we hand over all our agency uh, to, to the, to the medical industry. Um, You know, part of what the, the selling point is make them look like they're sleeping. So what winds up happening is they are able, they prepare them in a way where they look like they're sleeping, you know, where, it's like, oh, they almost look alive still. Look how beautiful they look. Mm-hmm. And there's something about the experience of that interrupts sometimes the acceptance. Because there is like this, this attachment to this, to this memory from when they were still alive. It's not as, um, I don't know if the word is like more boast. You notice the changes. It gives us information. It helps us accept. You know, the funeral industry is not that old within the timeline of humanity um, as we know it. It began around the time of the Civil War where, you know, folks were, you know, dying in the fields and they figured out a way um, to inject the, the soldiers with, with chemicals in order to kind of preserve them enough to travel back home so their families can have their, you know, like have their own rituals and respect and, and their own funerals. And then eventually, you know, so you started to have like the undertakers who would um, be the ones to start to kind of like take care of this work. You know, so people used to view bodies at home in their parlors and the funeral parlors were were spaces that were modeled. So funeral parlors were modeled after home parlors, right? Where people sit and and hang out and socialize. So that's where folks used to be uh, viewed and held. So funeral parlors created these like homey like environments for people to, you know, to have their their viewings and their funerals. 
initially, you know, people who had the resources began to pay and, and have their funerals in parlors. And then it became like this thing where um, it was like a status. So eventually it was like a status thing to have it at a funeral parlor. And, and then you started to kind of see less and less of people having viewings and things at home. Then there was a time where when they really started promoting things like embalming um, and using it as um, this is how you prevent disease from spreading. Um, so kind of like from a public health uh, perspective, you know, people started really like pushing that embalming was, was important and almost to the point where uh, people think, a lot of people think that embalming is required. You know, and then fast forward to, you know, this is what we do and it's status quo. So um, someone dies in a hospital, activate funeral home, and and folks take care of everything. And in that take and, and in that handing it over, both for the, the purposes of, of ease, like emotionally um, having to make all of these decisions, it just became really normalized. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think of the way that birth is also dealt with um, and delivering a child into the world, um, as they call it. Uh, it also is a little bit of like looking away in some ways, kind of what you described about us relating to death. And like, obviously, we don't want to face the pain. Walking towards the pain is 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 uh, terrifying and having to live in your body while you're experiencing that level of pain, which is different than obviously a loss and the heartbreak of losing someone um, versus the physical, like <laughs> excruciating pain of um, mm. labor. I know some people say they have or orgasmic labors. Mm. I've never experienced that. We'll never probably experience mm -hmm. that, but I believe it. But mo main, main point is that, you know, this thing about us not wanting to mm. be in pain and And what is what does pain have to show us, and what does pain have to teach us, and and that we don't know until much much later. Obviously, not meaning that you have to be in pain to learn something, but that there is so much to draw from um, someone's transition, um, whether it's into the world or out of the world, and that more and more we are trying to look away, trying to look away spiritually. And trying to numb ourselves in some way or another. And I totally understand why we would want to sort of hand that over to someone if we have, um, over time, lost some of what it all means, right? Or a lot of what it all means, it could mean. Um, and this spiritual sort of, yeah, the spiritual experience and initiation process in some way that we go through in both cases. And so makes sense why we would hand it over and and even then even people you know we've lost a few people this year in circles that I've been in and more than anything people really just want to numb themselves and even after their loved ones are long gone they're still sort of in denial in a lot of ways rightfully so because it's so painful especially when you lose like a child I, I definitely spent some time with a mother this year who lost a child and I can't even imagine, um, but it all makes sense of why we would sort of hand over so much to someone else where not to say that in a more traditional manner, you do it all because we'd be surrounded mm -hmm. by community. We'd be yes. surrounded by community that would help yes. us make sense of what happened. Mm -hmm. yep. And that would also take up work, take up some of the tasks, take up some of the labor related to it. And that you would feel held and loved on and that you would feel spiritually supported and physically supported whereas because of the the <laughs> because we've just been farther and farther away from a communal society where we yes. are there for each other in this way yep. then we just move further then we try to compensate for the lack of community even if we don't think about it you know yes. even if it's not like an obvious thing but by default then we say well you handle it like I'm just gonna pay you to be that community to go handle that for me Mm -hmm. uh, or to be those people. Um, so it feels like obviously a regression, but it has so much to do with both like the economic system we're in, but also mm -hmm. the fact that we just 
have no sense of belonging and no sense of community in the ways that our ancestors did, you know? And so mm-hmm. that what you're saying like really resonates both in the birthing process and then in the, in the lost death process. Cause even when you lose someone, like people are like, I don't want to really be around you. <laughs> you know, I don't know what to say. Yes. I think that a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, and what I described, you know, in terms of, the history of it um, and kind of its progression is, you know, is that, that there was this thing that happened that when we gave it all away and the culture shifted, people didn't pass on the, this is what you do. This is how you support. And this is true for birth and death work. So it's not a coincidence that I'm a birth worker and a death worker, because I understand the importance of those of the life cycle, right. And all of the transitions in between. And so there is something about when we're disconnected from the opportunities to receive the teachings from how to be with each other. So when folks are part of church communities, they have that when they're part of, let's say like, fraternities or sororities where there is when when you're part of a group of people that says yes to each other and in good and bad, we're going to show up whether or not I'm close to you. You know, I was talking to a friend who was like, I don't give a crap about church. I don't attend it. I don't believe in this, this faith that I was raised in. But when my aunt, Um, And other family members and cousins were killed in a car crash. The church community, people that I didn't know fed us for three months. For three months, we didn't have to think about cooking. We didn't have to think about toilet paper. We got to be numb and be held and have our needs met. We didn't feel alone. So with people's disconnection and, and harm, oftentimes with different faith communities, we haven't been able to quite figure out how to keep the community aspect from it when we don't belong to a particular congregation or a church. So one of the things that, that I feel I'm, I'm really committed to is how do we, how do we tap into our our tribe? How do we tap into our, our lineages? How do we collectively remember? I'm looking forward to the day where we normalize, we have a community to, to activate in those moments where we experience these, these great losses. That folks just, that we socialize ourselves again to when we hear about a neighbor experiencing a loss or a birth that our instinct is to bring them food, like minimum, bring them toilet paper, you know, you know think about like, what are the things that, that we need um, when we are at our deepest moments of grief and vulnerability? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a really big piece of it. I think the, the alienation and the loneliness and the, even with people around, it can still feel end up still end up feeling lonely because of the type of support and love mm-hmm. that you need that people don't understand or realize that they uh, can give or should give. And it's not, you know, it's not their bad. It's just kind of like what where we're at and what the things that we don't fully understand. But can I also add that we're so socialized mm-hmm. to be so individualistic and not needing equals. Yes. Being strong um, and also not knowing how to ask for help and for folks to move in a way that we don't wait for someone exactly. to ask for help. You know, that that it's OK to just show up and all they could do is say it's not maybe like maybe not receive you because they're not ready for your contact and for you to understand right. that, like, that's OK. So to go in and support without expectations. Um, but just again, for, for, for the installation of the, of like this knowing that 
this person is suffering and this is the way that I'm going to, to show right. up. Yeah. And, pe- and we're just not really like, where do we learn that? Like we're not taught that, you know, <laughs> like who teaches us or trains us mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, advises us on how to be with um, someone that is in that level of pain or in that level of recovery or going through their process. And, you mm-hmm. know, we don't know. And then they also don't know how to name what they need, nor is it always on mm-hmm. them. So it's like, we're just kind of like have lost all of this. And so it makes a lot of sense. Well, not all of it, because I think our instinct is to want to help. So like, you know, like thinking about when a tia or an abuela or someone dragged us to someone's house. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think we might overcomplicate things or you know, vulnerability is hard. So it's like, we also are like, Whoa, that's, I, I, that's a lot to hold. And I don't even know how, and that requires a level of vulnerability for me that I'm not really even sure how to handle myself if I end up opening it up, you know? So yeah. there's that piece as well. And so in terms of your practice, what have been some of what you've been able to do for folks? Um, what does it look like? I know that you come in different places. I think you had explained to me that you have tended to someone who hired you before they passed. Because in mm-hmm. my head, I was like, I, I think of like, oh, you know, they, they're being hired by a family member. But talk about being you know, being in your full self-determination mm-hmm. and agency when you're like, I'm going to call this uh, death midwife and I'm going to have her, um, you know, help me in this process. And I know you've been in that place as well as um, also tended to, to, um, to someone, someone's beloved when the family has reached mm-hmm. out to you. So I'd love to hear more about this person, these people who have been so clear in a place where they, mm. they called you and they said they, they wanted you to help them through this process and what that's like and what is it that you, and that I knew you explained a little bit about you, what you provide, but I'm curious, whatever you can share. Absolutely. Yeah. I had the privilege of, you know, connecting with an elder, you know, who was, you know, stage four cancer and, and they had very little time left, but we're very clear around what they wanted, you know, this is like a person who had, who was anchored into traditional practices. Um, There were Buddhists and practice Tifa. And there was like this beautiful thing where we had the conversation around like, okay, so who would be in the room, you know, after you pass, you know, and who would be, um, who would have the privilege of, bathing you and what do you want to be wrapped in you know so they had their fabrics that were important to them and we sang the songs and offered the prayers and all of the sacred herbs were burned and you know and and we called on the ancestors that needed to be there and we supported their partner and the space was strong enough for folks to be able to emote in the fullness of their grief, right? Mm-hmm. People got to wail. People got to be held in that wailing. You know, and those were their wishes. This is what they wanted. The The space smelled with the smells that brought them comfort. Um, and they were very clear around what day they wanted what ceremony um they were very clear mm-hmm. that they wanted a party with like wow <laughs> a second line you know and and that's what happened you know we were able to um also hold ceremony um because they had chosen to have a cremation And we were able to gather in community to do all of the prayers um, and to sing the songs at the crematorium while their partner, you know, pushed the button because that's what they wanted. They wanted to, they wanted to be witnessed. 
that their body was specifically being put in the crematorium. They wanted that witness by community, you know, and we honored those wishes in the same way we honored that party and like the foods that were, you know, important to them and the music that they loved was played. So, you know, they were able to, um, to say all of those things and all of those things were really beautifully met. You know, also had the experience of, of someone, you know, who, again, um, also hired me at, you know, when, when they were sick and they were very clear about, you know, wanting to die at home as well. Um, and both of these were home deaths. Both of these had hospice involved. The beautiful thing about having hospice involved when you know that, you know, that your end is coming near is that at the time of death, you don't have to call 911. So you don't have to have this like abrupt sirens, all of that coming into the space, into this like beautiful sacred liminal space that it is just as beautiful and just as magical as a birth, right? There is like this, um, it's really hard to describe the energy of a space where where someone has just transitioned. It is, it's like that, that silence of the power of this great event has just occurred. And this other person, you know, was also really clear around what were the things um, they, for the last, you know, few weeks of their life invited the folks that wanted, you know, they were like, look, if you want to come see me, come see me now. And people came and spent time with, um, you know, told the stories and collected the stories. Um, I gave folks ideas as to like, what are, what are some communal activities that they can do? You know, like, you know, like that song, Lo que me vaya a dar, que me lo den en vida, right? Yes, yes. So people had the, the space to openly share their love and support each other in this, in this grief, right? Because there's like the anticipatory grief that you experience when you know someone is going to, going to be dying. But it was so beautiful. Like they knew that they wanted um, to be in their room and they loved mezcal. <laughs> they spent a lot of time in Oaxaca, um, like went every year, was part of community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm like, all right, so if you want, you could have like a bottle of mezcal and when people come sit with you and visit with you, you know, to have like time after you transition, they could have like a shop in your name and with you. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. So imagine the beauty of seeing groups of people, you know, sometimes one person will be there by themselves. Sometimes it'd be like four or five people just like sitting sitting there telling stories, crying and holding each other. You know, this person picked out their whole outfit that they wanted to be um, cremated in. The cremation casket was decorated also in community. People wrote love words. They knew that they wanted to be wrapped in the blanket that their ancestor who had immigrated, you know, and and, and was like that last piece of, of like this particular lineage. They were able to make all of these decisions. Even the soundtrack, they prepared their soundtrack that they wanted played during their home funeral. How long, how long was this process, Luana? Like when did you arrive and then when did you leave? That is like a, a variety of like different days. So I came in, you know, we had some, some meetings beforehand while they were still alive. They weren't verbal at that juncture, but they wrote, they were able to write their messages you know, with their partner as well, um, what, what it was that they wanted. So we had several visits. Um, I would also kind of give energy work, um, you know, to, to kind of support them in that. And I did a little bit of, of you know, guidance over the phone. And then once he transitioned, uh, I got the call kind of similar to when it's time for someone to be born, you know, that they had transitioned. And, you know, I went and did the ritual to kind of did the elemental release and you know, guided family to tend to them. And we sang and cried. And that was like, you know, some hours. And then I went, you know, to get the things that they needed. They had a day 
that they just wanted to um, to just be by themselves before they invited community um, to begin to be with. They were able to be home for about two or three days before the day of the of the cremation. Is there instances where they want you there for that transition from life to death as well? Or is it usually that you arrive after they pass? Yeah, usually I get called in after Got they it. pass. And although, I mean, just like birth, right? Like sometimes someone might want me there for that, but a person will go when they're ready. Yes. And sometimes, and sometimes folks want to wait till there's no one around to leave us. That's true. So it's really less about me being there at the moment. I had that privilege with my dad, whose death taught me about the beauty of death, about how it can be beautiful, about how that tending and the slowness and the silence, like each moment of of waiting for that transition to happen forced me to, I think, reckon with a lot of the fear. But most, I think, one, one of the things that most impacted me was that, oh, there's beauty here. I didn't know. And if I could survive this experience and see the beauty and the sacredness, um, and also with my grandfather, you know, de, este de crianza, um, like, ah, we have options. And this was like in a, in a, in a hospital setting where I had enough confidence or kind of like clarity around setting boundaries that in this environment, and also there were like some really beautiful supportive staff at the hospital, you know, once he had been taken off um, life support. And, you know, where they made it quiet, where they didn't have any more medical personnel coming in, you know, they just allowed us to be with. And, you know, and after he transitioned, I was able to tell the doctor, like, I would like for him not to be touched at all by anybody for the next couple of hours because I'm here doing prayers. Mm -hmm. And they honored it so beautifully. So we have options. And sometimes we think that because, you know, we're in these particular institutions or there are these particular professionals that are used to being in charge, that are used to being in power, that we don't have our say, but like we do. Was it your father's transition and your grandfather's what made you realize that this could be a path for you of death midwifery? Absolutely. There was something about like, I knew I didn't want to do it in a traditional hospice. Like that was clear to me that I wanted to be outside. I wanted to work outside of the system. I wanted to, to be with people in the most human way, in a way that doesn't require progress notes, in a way that doesn't require. And, and this is me talking from like burnt out, <laughs> <laughs> leaving, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, I'm like, no quiero. I want to like connect with people as humans, not in a way that's pathologizing, not in a way that's based on forms, but are based on presence and are based on love and are based on spirit. Um, on your own terms and on their own yes. terms. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Not beholden to an insurance company, not beholden to all of these other systems, but just like, like, hi, yeah. you know. Is it okay to hold your hand? And not to say that that doesn't happen in these other systems because the people who say yes to this work, I'm like, you know, me quito mi sombrero. Yeah, of course. Right? But there's something about particular systems that I did not want to work in. So when I learned about um, death midwifery, big ups to, you know, my teacher, Reverend Angie Buchanan, Bruja Extraordinaire, <laughs> you know, really, really powerful, you know, doing like, deep work, you know, and in, in terms of like educating white folks also to like connect with their own indigeneity um, and their own lineages. So that was the teacher who kind of like initiated me into, into this path of death. Midwifery. Much love to, to them and to you. 
I mean, I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about as you're explaining this really powerful work that you're doing is the thing that you mentioned earlier as you were telling us a bit about the history of dying, essentially, and how we related to it, how we communed around it, and then Mm -hmm. also what exists now. It's like, you know, our economic system is impacted. I mean, impacts pretty much everything we do, right? And, um, Mm -hmm. And just class having such a huge role class and probably race in different points um, in in yeah. how we uh, relate to death and treat our people as they're transitioning and how this was something that was created for the elite who didn't want to have to deal yeah. with the, the messiness, right, of death, both the emotional mm-hmm. messiness and the literal um, messiness of it and how they were contracting people to kind of have to deal with that as, and, and also the, the realities of right now where so many of our people don't get the kind of sepulcro, like the kind of um, both transition and care in a hospital or hospice that they deserve mm-hmm. because there are different levels of yep. class status for hospices and hospitals, obviously. And then also that they yep. don't get the the kind of like sepultura, you know, when they can't afford um, a plot. For example, my mother, she really wants to, she wanted to be buried. Um, she's still alive, thank God. <laughs> but she, you know, at some point she mm-hmm. wanted to go back into the earth and she realized, you know, I can't really afford it. I can't afford it, so I'm going to be cremated. Mm. And and that's heartbreaking, you know? We had conversations about it, how to make it work. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's heartbreaking that if you want to go back into the earth and cremation is not the, the thing that you want for yourself, although there are people who choose it for very real spiritual reasons as well, that then you have to settle for mm-hmm. this thing that you don't want because you just can't afford it. Because the industry has created a situation where you can't afford a tiny piece of land to put your body into um, and you can't afford all the mm. other, other stuff that comes along with it. Right. And so to create this dignified process, maybe for people who can't afford to be buried, to create this process that's beautiful and powerful and still be able to go mm. um, into, you know, to go home uh, as people in my tradition would say it in the way that you wish is, is really um important and really sacred work that you're doing and um and how this again this economic system determines so much and the implications of it was traditionally done by mujeres too that women or were were the the Mm -hmm. sort of keepers Mm -hmm. of the tradition of of death midwifery and accompaniment in this way and that the medical industry in a very male-dominated world and their midwifery and that entire process was also taken by a very male-dominated medical industry just the way this was. When it was quote-unquote professionalized. (laughs) You know, my father's death taught me that I can be with death and in beauty. Um, And that kind of opened up that possibility. But the other part was definitely interrupting the funeral and industrial complex. And also for environmental reasons. We can't afford, the earth can't afford to keep using land for cemetery. You know, it's so interesting how a coffin is sometimes sold to you in a way that's like, oh, yes, you know, it's like, airtight and it's completely sealed and of these things and it's like that they're gonna protect your loved one from what and this cement lining doesn't protect the chemicals of that are used in embalming from seeping into the earth these tons of cement being put in you know like these non um biodegradable caskets which are really expensive you know, um, imagine, you know, the impact of capitalism, right? That says that you see it so often. You show love by how much money you spend. And love looks like getting the most expensive casket. That's how you honor yes. this person that you love so much. Getting the most beautiful flower arrangements. Getting them this beautiful brand new outfit. Spending this money to yeah, have absolutely. them made up 
to look like they're still alive. And and paying for this um, limousine and the fancy hearse and feeding people and getting las tarjetitas and getting the the buttons and getting the t-shirts and all of these things in the middle of your grief, you have to make these financial decisions that often, if we haven't prepared, put a lot of grieving families into debt where often, you know, the average cost of a funeral right now is around, you know, like $10,000. Eso es sin contar la lapida. That's without counting the headstone. What does the $10,000 include? So it includes like the whole funeral and the casket, um, you know, like at a, at a funeral home. Okay. Yeah. You know, and obviously in some parts of the country, it's more expensive than others. And, um, but like a burial, um, a, you know, uh, that includes the burial um, and the casket and all of that. Right. That's average. Yeah. I think, I think the range is between seven to 12, seven to 15. I know people have spent close to 20, right? Um, imagine making those kind of financial decisions in the middle of your grief. Just it's like people just, you know, especially when it's unplanned for, when it's like a sudden, all of a sudden, this is the, these are the decisions that you have to make. And what would it look like if, if we felt that it was good enough that we didn't have any shame of being seen as too poor to afford. Um, although like a lot of folks who have a lot of resources, who have land are able to, you know, die at home and be buried on family land, going straight to the earth in a shroud or like a handmade pine casket. That's biodegradable. And it's all that like, allowed by law or legal in the country to be buried in your backyard? Or is that something that also the state gets involved in? It's like, no, absolutely not. You have to be buried in the cemetery or you have to be cremated. A lot of folks who live in rural areas have family plots on the land, you know, but these are folks who historically like have acres and acres of land and are able to, to do what they want on it. You know, there's definitely like... Um, rules around like how close to waterways and and just you know and all of those kind of things, but um, each state definitely has their own rules. But cremation and burial are not the only options. There's there's more of a trend of folks leaning towards green burials. So you know, so people are getting buried in mushroom suits. There's a new water cremation where like water with, you know, with um, alkaline, um, this alkalining process that dissolves um, the body down to the bones and then like the bones are are ground up. There is um, human composting where you're basically just like offered up to the earth and there's different ways, you know, of, of, of doing it. So, so there are more, there are more options available to us than just those two. And, and the beauty of, of people who are in my role all across the country is that they can walk you through that. So whether, you know, you just got married and you're like, oh crap, I have to start thinking about these things. Or I just had a child and I have to start thinking about these things or because death is imminent, you know? So, so we want to like really think about having these conversations while we're healthy Ideally, um, that we have, you know, really honest conversations with the folks that are around us and let them know where where our papeles are, that if you've chosen someone to be making these decisions for you, that like you keep them updated as to where things are. It's important to to really like think about um, all of the options available to us, like we don't have to rush to do this thing. And, you know, and, and I'm just in home funerals and all of this, this isn't for everyone. And like, that's real. This isn't about like shaming people into like not doing what their family has always done. Um, This is about like letting folks know that there are other options that aren't 
going to put you into debt that aren't going to be as harmful to the environment. Um, and that you can, and that you can also just relate to the entire process differently, the yes. process of somebody transitioning and then also create a particular type of room uh, and environment for your mm. grief. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the more that we talk about it, the better we are supported when it's our time and the better that we can support others when it shows up for them. You know, this is like another way of showing us how to love each other better. This is another way of experiencing freedom because we long, we are longing for each other. And a lot of the suffering that we're experiencing is because of isolation and loneliness, not knowing how to ask for help and not knowing how to show up, not because of lack of desire, but just a clumsiness sometimes around how, you know, by having these conversations and being awkward and being uncomfortable and being nervous and not wanting to do it, but knowing that it's necessary, like practicing, practicing, how, uh, talking about these things now um, and frequently. Death is like, we all going to die. We're yes. all going to die. Like, let's not pretend we're not. You know, for, <laughs> for real, for real. So it's like, um, you know, birth and death are beautiful, magical, spectacular events that are super mega normal and not a big deal because it happens to all yes. of us. Let's find time and space to, to talk about it, you know, and not like, you know, it doesn't have to, again, it doesn't have to be so serious and so deep. You know, it's not like, okay, so I'm going to like break this down. So, you know, we do this in baby steps and we do it with each other. And when that's really hard, then you call someone like me into the, to help facilitate the conversation. Like it, this isn't about like everyone should use a death midwife or like everyone should use a regular midwife or a doula. It's about, these are options that are here available to support this process that you're absolutely capable of doing on your own. And sometimes like we have the community to, to hold us through it. And sometimes we need to bring outside support to help us. Yes. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, I think that is one of the biggest messages that we want folks to take away from this conversation today mm -hmm. about agency, about self-determination, yep. and then also about normalizing this conversation. We were all born into the world and we're all going to be leaving it at some point. And, you know, I, I come from a community, you know, I come from a people's, um, you know, I'm a Mexicana that, that have this, you know, mm -hmm. and other cultures also have like, the Dia de los Muertos and, you know, where a lot of folks are like, oh, Mexicans make fun of death and they relate to it. And it's, it's so interesting and da, da, da. But honestly, and we can definitely debate it, but like, it's just November 2nd. Like I will have conversations about death and people passing mm -hmm. and, and really elevate my ancestors on that day mm. or my people will, but we don't want to talk about it any yeah. other damn day. You know, <laughs> we don't want to relate to it any other day in that way. We just use that one day. And so I wish that the way in which we elevate honor ancestors and then talk about death and like mm -hmm. laugh and like decorate a Katrina, which is the, you know, the, the calaca, the, Uh, that we mm. would also relate to it that way on April 10th, you know? And so I think that that's the other piece that you're really putting out about the importance of relating to this in a normal way, because it is part of life and it is death. And the other thing that I, I just want to reflect back to you is that, you know, the reasons why, one of the reasons why I love birth midwifery so much, and I have so much love and respect for for birth midwives and now obviously death midwives, now that I've learned so much more is that you all still as normal as it is. And as, you know, as much as we want to make it like matter of fact conversation, you, you have one foot in, in the spirit world and one foot in the, in this material world. And then there's something so deeply spiritual uh, about your role. You're like these light warriors, you know, that really help accompany uh, a person that's 
giving birth or a person that's coming into the world and and you're you know in some ways or other mm-hmm. so much accompaniment spiritual accompaniment and 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 guidance as well as this person that's leaving this world or has just left in my tradition of ifa we believe that the person who has just passed away whose heart is not beating anymore whose brain is sort of done um their spirit is still here for 40 days and certainly the next 40 minutes certainly the next four hours you know and so the role that that mid- midwives play death midwives and birth midwives is so important because they really are these these powerful light warriors that that help in these transitions and that are so spiritually grounded and materially grounded and um and that we need more of this practice we need more um to normalize also this role mm-hmm. and to utilize this role and so i just want to mm-hmm. commend you for your beautiful work your powerful work and um and also for your for your life you know that and what, all the things that have sort of brought you to to it and all the ways in which you're lifting up um, this practice and this message to all of us. So thank you so much for being mm. on this podcast and having this conversation today for all of us mm-hmm. um, to kind of learn and to begin to explore um, death and, and what our own transitions and our the transitions of our loved ones could look like. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, I'm coming to you today after yesterday holding a ritual for a baby who was born, stillborn last year, holding space. And this, mm. this mother was able to be held in community. And because people showed up to, to honor this life, it is supporting her, her quality of life mm. and her grieving process. So my, my prayer and my hope is that people show up. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. Sometimes you could say, I don't know what to say right now. But being there in your awkwardness and your pain and your fear means everything. Asha, thank you. Thank you for listening to La Cura Podcast. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Francisca Pochas Coronado, edited by Rafael Maya. Our music is by Rafael Maya. Please subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at La Cura Podcast. Baba la wo.